0: Welcome to The Call Porter. My name is Caleb Cangelosi. I'm your host. The Call Porter is a video conversation uh, of Log College Press. Uh, We are glad that you've joined us again. This is our second uh, video conversation. If you're not familiar with Log College Press, uh, we are a website and a book publishing company. Uh, We aim to collect and to reprint the writings of and about the American Presbyterians from the 18th and the 19th century. Uh, We believe that the past is not dead, primary sources are not inaccessible. In the 18th and 19th century, American Presbyterians are not irrelevant. Uh, today, I have with me a friend of mine from seminary, uh, Mr. Brian Peterson, who is uh, the pastor of Surfside Presbyterian Church, uh, and uh, he is a DMin student under Don Fortson at RTS Charlotte working uh, on Jonathan Dickinson. Uh, and so we are going to spend some time today talking uh, about Jonathan Dickinson talking about his dissertation, talking about uh, the life, the significance of this man and, and why he is uh, understudied and underappreciated. Uh, and hopefully we'll get a chance to look at one of the sermons uh, by Dickinson that's on our Law College Press website. Uh, if you've never been to the website, it's www.logcollegepress.com. We encourage you to check it out. There's all sorts of resources, uh, free uh, resources, books, articles, um, uh, sermons. Uh, much more than you have time in your life to read, even while we're here, are on quarantine. Uh, but you uh, would never be able to read everything on our site. Uh, but it's there for you. Uh, so, Brian, welcome. Thank you for for joining us. And uh, tell us a little about yourself uh, and and how you came to study Jonathan Dickinson.
1: All right. Well, hey, Caleb. Good to see you, brother. Been uh, been a while. It's fun to catch up with. Um like-minded guys and especially when they're from our, uh, our seminary days those were some he- some heady days weren't
0: they absolutely yeah. that were, they were fun
1: they were fun so um yeah, i've been here at surfside church this is in uh, the myrtle beach area south carolina uh just since last summer summer of 2019 uh, moved down here from charlotte so this is my third church uh, i've been serving at uh, uh in what 17 years is that right caleb 17, 18 years? That's, that's right
0: 2003 when we finished
1: yeah, all right. So, um, I was four years up in Charlotte at a church up there, Christ Covenant Church, and I was 12 or 13 years in uh, my native California. I'm a native a born and raised down in southern California, in San Diego, and Orange County areas, and spent uh, my first uh, number of years uh, at a church out in, in California. My wife is Anna, we've got seven kids, uh, from college all the way down to second grade, so we 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 run the uh, you know, uh, the whole whole thing there Um, yeah yeah yeah. um dickinson so it's interesting i you ever have one of those moments where you're by yourself but you still feel embarrassed you know because (laughs) i uh i was i noticed that in 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 our world uh there's a great deal of emphasis and interest in 19th century presbyterianism right you got the civil war in there all that kind of stuff and there was that's a really hugely important time, as, as we all know. But relative to that uh, severe lacking of colonial era, revolution era, and maybe even in the era right up, to, leads up to that, very little written, um, very little uh, time and energy given to that colonial Presbyterianism, with the exception of things like the Great Awakening and, and maybe the Adopting Act. Aside from that, there's really very little, uh, written. And yet that's the era that has long intrigued me. And so uh, I had, I forget what it was now that I was reading something uh, back in probably, I don't know, seven, eight years ago, something like that, uh, that really further intrigued me uh, in that whole era. And uh, it's centered on John Witherspoon. So I uh, wrote to Don Fortson, uh, knowing nothing of Don Fortson. This was the moment of sort of embarrassment. I wrote this whole thing <laughs> to Don Fortson, explaining why we really need to give a lot more emphasis to colonial Presbyterianism and how I want to enter this program and I want to focus on <laughs> some work on Witherspoon and all that. And he sent me back this super uh, kind email, and that's when I learned that I was, he was sort of the, you know, <laughs> Former colonial Presbyterian scholar, I felt like, oh gosh, what? You know, I felt like a, a real fool. But anyway, so that's how I got into things. Was really through Witherspoon. And uh, when I first started the uh, doctoral program up at Charlotte, the DMin program, uh, I was still living in California, and uh, started off with an eye on focusing my studies on Witherspoon. I then moved to Charlotte. And during that time, I bumped up against, uh, against uh, Jonathan Dickinson and found him to be two things simultaneously, incredibly interesting and very overlooked. And so that's how it began for me. And I just, I read more. I talked to my advisor, uh, Don Fortune, as we've mentioned, and it just kind of took off from there. And so um, I'm, getting ready to, you know, I've written a good bit of stuff uh, that will go into the dissertation, kind of organizing things and start moving forward. So, I've, you know, I have a, I, there's lots of guys out there that even have a, a better handle on Dickinson, I'm sure, but uh, he's somebody that's it's on my mind a great deal. That's great.
0: Well, we'll, let's, we'll come back to your dissertation here in a bit, but something you said uh, struck me. You know, you said that the, the, the 18th century is, is a lot less familiar than the 19th century. Uh, and and it it seems like one of the reasons for that is that their writings are so uh, so much more inaccessible than even the 19th century men. Uh, why do you think that is? Why why have those 18th century writings? I mean, Dickinson. We actually have a lot of his writings on Law College Press. Um, many more of his writings than say John Thompson, his contemporary, uh, and and maybe Nemesis. You know, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, we have a lot by Witherspoon, um, but is it that they weren't writing or is it just that their writings were not preserved in the 19th century and therefore we don't have them available them? I think there's
1: Yeah, it's a good question. There's, there's probably a number of answers to it, but I think two things. You, one, I think you nailed on the head was I don't think they were preserved as later Presbyterians writings were preserved. Remember you you fast forward to the 1800s, okay you 're in the nineteenth century now, and they there was so much emphasis on the role of the church in the unique American experience, especially building up to the war the civil war that they were they were publishing things they had they had all these different magazines were published especially on the border states they're publishing things back and forth and while they had some of that, not nearly as much in the 18th century. So I think that's one reason. They just they simply weren't as preserved. And the other reason is they're harder to read in a lot of ways because they're still sort of writing in Puritan, at least Dickinson in that era, kind of pre, maybe early colonial, pre-Revolution era. It's very Puritan-esque, the way they write. And it can be inaccessible from that perspective where it's you're reading it and it takes a little grind to get from beginning to end you know and they're writing in very very philosophical terms a big deal in that era in the 18th century was the the question of the will the nature of the will and that infuses itself into a lot of the writings and a lot of the sermons and it just isn't interesting uh, uh, to very many people, not for any bad reason, I, I don't mean that disparagingly, it's just, it's not, it just is not, he doesn't light people on fire, as maybe later 18th century Presbyterianism, because we can feel their struggle more, you know, they're, they're dealing with questions of inequality and the slave trade, all this kind of stuff, whereas we don't necessarily feel the same burden that they felt in the 18th century on the question of the will for instance, and the nature of that, it's not something that we're really wrestling with. So I think those are some reasons why there's just not as much 18th century Presbyterian, you know, preservation. Yes. So you
0: know, we're going to talk about this sermon by Dickinson here in a bit. Uh, as I was reading it off of our site, um, even the 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 print quality of the document, you know, capital letters everywhere, uh, tons of italics that. You know, we wouldn't put italics. It, it, it's just a harder reading experience. Not only, uh, you know, what they might be saying, but um, but just the printing of it. So, so what would you say to someone who wants to get into the eighteenth eighteenth seri- century writings, but struggles with some of that? How, how do we read these primary sources? What what, yeah. what advice would you have for somebody? Um, I would
1: say it gets easier the more you get into it. Like, so like- the Puritans like the Puritans are. That's right. John Owen's hard to read, you know, uh, I, I, it's just a difficult guy, but the more you read those Puritans, the easier it becomes, you almost become familiar with their language. Right. And in these documents, like you said, the print quality is not often as good. And you got the, the, the old classical way of of writing English words and even the lettering was different and all So it slows it down because you feel very bogged down. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think that one advantage 18th century Presbyterian, you know, sort of this era we're talking about has in that regard over even 17th century writing is it, I I feel like the, the writings from the 1700s do move a little quicker, a little smoother. Um, it kind of sails along a little easier than even, some of the puritan writings from 100 years before you know there's just a different style a little bit different um urgency maybe to their writing maybe not quite as deep that uh you know john owen write that old phrase why say it in 10 words if you could say it in 100 you don't quite get that same dynamic in um in later in, in later puritans uh if we're looking at edwards and Dickinson, that era as the end of puritanism um it's a little bit easier to read than than the previous eras, so I would say to people, just stick with it, grind away. You know, that's kind of the only advice. I wish there was a uh, an app we could snap a picture of an old document that changes it into contemporary reading, and then we'd all, you know, it'd be great. But that's Kind, right. of, that, kind of grind away.
0: Well, yeah, you know, I, I think one of the things I love about our website is that these writings are now accessible. Um, you know, we're trying to say that they're not inaccessible. They are accessible, here they are. Uh, but one of these days I would love for us to reprint something, you know, of a Dickinson or of, a, of a, an 18th century. We've reprinted several of the 19th century uh, men in part because it, it is easier to, to access their writings. And, and yeah. so, um, but I'd, I'd love to, to see us kind of move in that direction as well. So why don't you tell us about Dickinson himself uh, why you think he's underappreciated, understudied, um, and, and why is he significant? Why do we need to know more about Jonathan Dickinson? Not just the period of the Great Awakening in general, but why, do, why is Jonathan Dickinson someone we need to know?
1: About? Sure. Well, um, so a little bit about Dickinson, you know, sort of a uh, let, me, let me introduce you to my friends kind of thing. You know? That's right. That's right. Uh, today is actually Jonathan Dickinson's birthday. That's oh, wow. April 22nd. Uh, 1688 he's born uh, and so you know kind of locate that in in presbyterian history again kind of towards the end of that Puritan era he's a contemporary of edwards then um he is uh born in massachusetts so he's, he's american born uh we you remember the uh the part of Jonathan Edwards' life on uh, the halfway covenant, right? That wasn't, that wasn't just limited to Edwards. That was bigger than just Edwards. Of course, he made it famous in and, and the battles and everything that resulted from that. It was, so we rightly associate it with that. But there's good evidence to suggest that Dickinson's family was involved in the halfway covenant disputes. Hmm. And it's what caused them to move from where they were in the Connecticut River Valley to Massachusetts because of that. Ironically, really ironically, um, his father, uh, Dickinson's father, or grandfather rather, um, named Nathaniel, was uh, very much opposed to Presbyterian polity. So much so that if, if asked, why did you move from Connecticut to Massachusetts, he'd say there's two reasons, like halfway covenant and, the, and Presbyterian probably down yeah. there. You know, and that, I mean, we just don't think in those terms anymore. You know? That's just, right. Just, I just think it's so interesting. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, so he's in Massachusetts. Um, we actually don't know all that much about his uh, earliest years, but we do know this. Dickinson used to go to his grandparents' uh, house in the summer times. And he went to the coast of New Jersey and met Israel Chauncey, who was one of the principal founders, probably the principal founder of Yale It became Yale. Okay. And uh, while there also became friends with the Pearson family. So Israel Chauncey lays it on thick to get Dickinson and John Pearson to come to college.
0: And John Pearson's going to come up again when we talk about this sermon, right?
1: That's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: So we'll, we'll keep him in.
1: Right. Right. So Pearson and Dickinson were were very lifelong friends, very good friends. Um, There are two people that are really very good friends to to Dickinson that really help us understand Dickinson. Pearson's one, the others uh, Foxcroft, Thomas Foxcroft, a lot of letters back and forth there. So in 1702, then uh, Dickinson, uh, enrolls at what becomes Yale. What's it called, the uh, 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 School for the Church, I think it's called at the time. Okay. And uh, so that's very interesting, that's the year it opened. So the first year it opened, Dickinson is the first enrollee and graduates in 1706. So he's the first graduate of Yale. Wow. Uh, And you put that together with 40 years later, he's the first president of Princeton Okay, so this sets Dickinson at the headwaters of, uh, of America. Yeah. If that for, if for nothing else, that alone is why Dickinson should be recovered. Right, right. Uh, so that's a very interesting little fact. Well, anyway, so in, um, he moves, not much is known kind of in the intermediate time, but in, uh, a couple years later, 1708, he moves to Elizabethtown, New Jersey, and marries the uh, sister of the pastor of the church there. That pastor left rather suddenly. There's a humorous story that's not really been verified, but uh, been told many times that might be true about how that happened. But the net result was um, in 1709, Dickinson becomes the pastor of a church in Elizabethtown, New Jersey, and he never left. He was the pastor there almost 40 years. Wow. um, Which, again, is an interesting piece. So, but he's not, it's a Congregational Church. Not till, uh, not quite 10 years later, he becomes Presbyterian. And uh, in 1717, he's on the rolls of Synod. Um, uh, And very quickly, he became one of the youngest. Uh, He's 34 years old when he becomes the moderator of Synod for the first of three times. And you might know this better than me, Caleb, as I've looked through history I don't find anybody else who's been moderator three times.
0: Yeah. I know some folks who've been moderator twice, William Plummer. Yeah. Uh, I think there was another man in the 20th century, but yeah, I've never heard of anyone moderator of, of at least on assembly level, but I guess at that point that was the highest court. That
1: was the highest court. Yeah. That's, yeah. Right. Anyway, yeah. That's, that's kind of a interesting thing. So yeah, Dickinson, he, um, so, just something really interesting, and we could sort of talk all day, I guess, on some of these interesting stories. But here's one that's really interesting that I think you'll appreciate, Caleb. Is um, there was the 1720s was a rocky decade. It, it's obviously the 1730s, the Great Awakening, and, and kind of early 40s. Uh, it, all the 40s, but he, the decade prior to that, the seeds of all that discord are already being sown. And Dickinson's right in the middle of it. So because he's the moderator in 1721, he preaches in 1722 to open the assembly. Well, while he was the moderator in 1721, there was a uh, very hotly contested debate having to do with the nature of church authority, ecclesiastical authority, and what is the nature of synod. Is it judicial? Is it, is it, uh, advisory? You know, all this kind of, and so this is becoming a really hot deal in a very, very young infant church. So Dickinson's at the center of all this. And in 1722, he preaches the opening sermon of the assembly. And in that sermon, he, he had previously me back up in this, in the 21 meeting of this of the synod, he offered a protest, which is unusual as the moderator, He offered a protest and it, he took a whole year between the two meetings to try to persuade folks to to join him. And the nature of that uh, protest again, had to do with answering the question of the nature of the assembly, because he's very keenly aware that um, this is a young infant Presbyterian church. And he does not want to see it fractured. He wants to see it set off on a right course. Well, in 1722, the next year, then the, the assembly is very divided over this. And he offers a concession. Four, he offers four points of a concession, taken together the known as the, uh, what's it called? The Pacificatory, I think it was called. Four concessions. That if the other side will agree, then we will agree. And so he offered that as a little glimpse into the first workings of Dickinson as a moderate uh, to bring, you know, warring parties together. And what is, what's really interesting is they voted. It was a unanimous vote to approve the motion that he had protested the previous year. And when they voted unanimously, it's the first time that we have in Presbyterian, American Presbyterian minutes, where the assembly rose and sang Psalm 133. Oh, wow. Which we do every year at the general assembly when we close the assembly. That's so interesting. It is interesting. It's neither here nor there, but it's like, oh, one of those little facts of history that's like, oh, that's not interesting. We sort of, you know, where, where does that come from? You know, it, it, maybe there's some Irish Presbyterian history of things built into that, but um, I just think that's a really interesting thing. So here again, he's at the center of controversy. He, he, he does his thing. And at the end of it, uh, there's unity, you know, and and that's another thing that only Dickinson could do. Same thing comes up again with the adopting act. Uh, he was opposed to subscription. Dickinson was, was firmly opposed to any form of subscription at all. Um, not because he was theologically loose, but because he knew that, uh, the recent past with the Irish Presbyterians did not produce any kind of unity at all. When, and they had their own uh, attempt at forging a peaceful path forward in Ireland called the Pacific Act. And Dickinson, did, he, he, he liked the Pacific Act, he liked what they were doing in Ireland, but he saw that in Ireland, those that were promoting a strict subscription were also inadvertently promoting discord within the the Presbyterian body. And it was resulting in a splitting in a division of the Irish Presbyterians. And the same question was coming now at the end of the 1720s to the American Presbyterian context. And that's the very famous 1729 Adopting Act. And he argued vigorously against any form of subscription Uh, He didn't think it was necessary. He thought the scripture alone uh, was sufficient for these things based on 2 Timothy 3.17. And it just, uh, here again, he's finding himself in the middle of serious controversy. And he tries very hard to um, forge a path forward. And so Without giving up his, his convictions, and without requiring the other side to give up his convictions, he was the primary person responsible to forge a union between the two sides, so that there wasn't a, again a unanimous adopting of subscription to the Westminster Confession. You know, but in a
0: in a way that that he would have been comfortable with, he voted. Who,
1: yeah, yeah, he was opposed to subscription, but he voted for the adopting act. He was present at that assembly. And uh, so anyway, you know, there's a lot of these old stories, but it just gives a little introduction to who who Dickinson was. Um, The 1720s, you know, it really his work centered on those two issues of the nature of authority in the church from the synod uh, and uh, requirements for ministers to be ordained, right? Uh, And so... He was at the center of both those in both of those fights that threatened to split the assembly. He held it together and produced unanimous votes. Um, uh, so I, that that is a rare gift.
0: Yeah. yeah. And so during the when the when the split old side, new side split does happen. Um, he goes with a new side, correct? Right.
1: That's uh, right. But that's
0: because he was in favor of the revivals. Is that the way you would understand yeah. it?
1: Yes, he was, but that actually gets to—if we had the time to talk through this sermon, it's what makes this particular sermon so interesting. Because yeah, well, let's,
0: yeah, let's talk. Let's talk about it, and we can come back to some other questions about his significance uh-huh. and underappreciation in your dissertation. But yes, yeah, so tell us about this sermon.
1: Well, okay, so the sermon we have in front of us, "The Danger of Schisms and Contentions," is what it's called, and, and um, uh, it's got a longer name, you know, in classic Puritan style—the names of their sermon, yeah um it's a classic plain style sermon uh very dickinson like he he preached in that puritan plain style um and but this was preached to presbytery in 1739 now it's it's october of 1739 and the reason that grabs our attention is up until 1739, Dickinson's opposed to the to the revivals. He would he would have been on the old side. Okay, uh, he is not in favor of the Great Awakening. Uh, he's very skeptical of it, and uh, he he starts to hear a little bit more about George Whitfield, who eventually came to his church. But in August, so this sermon he preached in October of. 1739, it's August, two months earlier that his own church in Elizabethtown begins to experience some revivals. The awakening comes to his church in in August of 1739. And now, so that begins to change his mind. So we're catching him in this sermon right at the point when his mind is in the process of being changed from opposed to the awakening, though sympathetic to it, to being in favor of the awakening, though cautious about it. So this sermon is preached right at that crossroads. Interesting. It is. So you kind of catch a glimpse of his heart and mind with that with that context.
0: But now it's clear when you read the sermon that he is he's aiming his his gun sights at those who uh, would have been looking at certain ministers, I guess, who who were not seeing many conversions in their church, and therefore could not have been pious men or, and I guess it was his friend, right? The friend that you mentioned earlier, that was one of the ones who was being accused of, of not being a good minister because he wasn't seeing conversions. Am I getting that story
1: correct? Yeah, that's John Pearson. That's right. And they were very close friends. Um, now, as I mentioned, actually, Dickinson lived in the Pearsons home when they were young at, in, in college together and uh, did his wife's funeral. Uh, the whole deal, and so he was very jealous for the uh, the reputation of people like Pearson against people that he also admired and respected, like John Thompson, who you mentioned, other you know very firm old siders that were pro subscription in the previous decade, things like this um, and, and Dickinson was very jealous to to defend the lives and the ministries of those that are under attack. Even if he didn't agree with them, he still would say these are pious men. And that's the whole point of this sermon. To your point, he aims his sights at his fellow newsiders. I think that's why Dickinson gets an audience from both sides of these debates, because he would stand with one side um, and, 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 can try to convince them that the other side uh, is worth listening to. Um, And, and, and even though he may have agreed with, with the opposite side and and over here, they're taking all these arrows. He'd stand with them and say, I'll take the arrows for you and then fire them back at his fellow like minded people. That's what he did all the time. He did that in the um, 1720s on the whole adoption case issue. He did it again when it came to the, uh, to the great awakenings.
0: No. Um, so are there are there places you can point to as pages on this sermon? It's a 40-page sermon. Uh, yeah. Can you maybe find a paragraph that you want to read or something that would maybe show exactly what you're talking about there?
1: I can. So there's several of them. Um, forgive me for looking down here, but I'm just looking at the manuscripts uh, Um, of the sermon itself so even at the very beginning uh, which if you've got your copy of it that that matters to you now but it'll be on the third page okay yeah i'm looking at it a little glimpse there about halfway down um he refers to them as the excellent servants of christ he says um they're divided talking about paul and apollos early on they were divided into contending parties um and he says uh, he says the, the problem, uh, the one side uh, being denominated from the other, and the other side from the other. Each party in such a distinguishing manner, preferring the one as comparatively at least, to despise the other of these excellent servants of Christ. Now he's referring there to Paul and Apollos and the rest of the of the New Testament people, but it's a little glimpse into his instinct to never disparage the other side in the conflict in a public setting. He wants to make sure that his readers understand that Paul and Apollos thought of each other as excellent servants of Christ. Um, and that kind of sets the tone there. So if you move forward, um, uh, there's an excellent uh, part of the sermon that comes under the third point. Caleb, and it's on, uh, I think it's on page 16. All
0: right, page 16.
1: I want to go there a little bit. Again, the print quality isn't the best. But this is, what, what he's doing in this sermon is he is saying that if you are causing divisions because you're favoring one minister over the other, then you are, you are showing a carnal mind. He's quick to say, everybody likes certain pastors. It's not wrong to prefer a certain pastor over another pastor. That's fine. But what is wrong is to, because you like pastor A, pastor B is not any good. That's what, that's what he's after here. Uh, And he's got these five, five people that he's aiming his, his his criticisms at. So the third of those is the third charge on page 16, really that um, you are guilty of an, a carnal mind if you have a censorious and uncharitable attitude towards other ministers. So <clears throat> what he says on that, and then I'm going to skip ahead to page uh, 20 to kind of hammer it home. But he says, uh, they are also uncharitable in this respect who are censorious and uncharitable towards some of the faithful ministers of Christ. Now he's talking about old side, new side people. All right. First them as faithful ministers of Christ and those that adhere to the sacred administrations on account of such preferences of one minister to another. Um, men are loath to esteem in the wrong, uh, to, be, uh, to be esteemed in the wrong or to be uh, disesteemed for their sinful conduct, and therefore very ready to excuse one fault by committing another. This is commonly seen, and in no case more common than in this before us, that is, in dividing the church. Divisions are matters of public observation and some apology must be made for them. He's, he's, he's laying down the gauntlet there, referring to those that are of a different mind as excellent servants of Christ. He wants to, he's going to assume he's going to address the congregation that's hosting his presbytery meeting. That congregation was notorious for being a divisive people. And so he's going to aim his sermon at those men that are in the sanctuary that are not ministers, they're just members of the church. He's going to hammer them even though they are new side folks. So he calls them excellent ministers of Christ. The old side guys are excellent ministers of Christ and you must give an apology, like a defense for why you would cut them out of the ministry. Uh, Sort of saying you can't do it. Um, So it's very interesting and then he comes to Page uh, 20. Here, he aims at the new siders. So he's defending the old siders. Aims here at the new side ministers, himself being one of them. Hmm. He says, I'm aware that uh, it gets a little choppy here. So I'll just kind of trudge through it. Top of page 20. I'm aware that. I am aware what answers may be made to all this. You see that? Yeah. Will probably be urged by such to whom this discourse is more directly pointed. That those ministers and their adherents who are thus censured by them have not experienced these convictions and humiliations as are necessary preparations for having conversions to God, nor such evidences of the love of God or such joy and peace in believing as those that are of the true children of God have experienced. And what he's saying is, I know you new side guys. I'm one of them. Okay? And he's saying, I know you. And your answer to why you're willing to cause division is because those old side guys haven't experienced the graces that you and I have experienced. And he will go on to say, I know that you question their very salvation. Um, which is a little bit, we all know what came the next year when Gilbert Tennant preached his unconverted ministries sermon, right? The dangers of unconverted ministry. Right. A little bit of a, um, it's almost like, I, I wish I knew what Dickinson knew. I, I wish I knew if he was aware that Gilbert Tennant was going to preach that sermon, you know, <laughs> Getting word that Tennant is talking about this. I, who knows the answer to that, but this is a, it's almost a preemptive strike against the disasters from that sermon, you know?
0: And, and but what's interesting, right, is that Dickinson still goes with them that's into right. the Senate of New York. Right. Um, you know, so.
1: Yes. Uh, that is, that's why Dickinson is so unique because my instinct is to stand with the folks that I agree with. Okay. I think you and I are like-minded in a lot of things. And, uh, my instinct is to stand with those that I'm like-minded with, and to say, "Yeah, yeah, those 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 bad guys over there," you know, or to say nothing at all. Right, right. Everyone is willing to stand with those that are being accused of such things, and almost to 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 stand shoulder to shoulder with them, and to say, I- "I'm one of you, and so I'm going to tell you what you're all doing wrong," you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, it's, it's, it's a little bit, I hadn't thought of this before, but it's a little bit like um, in uh, a time to kill when the accused father hires a white attorney because he knows full well that's going to get the audience of uh, the attention of the white jury. That, that's kind of the approach that Dickinson wants to take with all these things. He, he, He's a new cider. He becomes a new sider. He didn't used to be a new sider. and many of his friends were still old siders. But he begins to see, in the very year, just two months before he preaches this, something. There's something to this awakening, you know, and um, and so that's why he stands uh, with the old siders, having been one for a long time. But now he's a new cider, so he's got both sides can claim him. And he says to the newsiders, you've got it all wrong. You guys are being very censorious and you're dividing the church. Um, I've seen the awakening unfold in my own life, in my own church. And I saw it even before Whitfield. Right, right.
0: <laughs> He's a so um, t- tell us, why do you think that Dickinson is, is not as familiar to us as a Gilbert Tennant? Uh, obviously in Edwards he doesn't really count because he's such head and shoulders above. But, you know, we, we know some of the 18th century men, we know the, the, the Gilbert tenant, the Witherspoon, even the, um, you know, the log college men. Why don't we know Dickinson as well? Do you think, why is he underappreciated?
1: Well, I think that he's underappreciated. He wasn't real fiery. So he doesn't, he doesn't have uh, the heat attached to him as tenant and he's overshadowed by Edwards, hmm. you know, and you put those together and he just kind of flies under the radar. Although um, uh, I think it was Erskine who said that um, the British Isles have produced no such luminaries as Edwards and Dickinson, hmm. you know, it, it, the people in that era would have not seen Edwards as head and shoulders above. They would have said Dickinson and Edwards are, are the, their peers. Um, but history sees Edwards, uh, as just the giant, you know, and, and they were, they were contemporaries In fact, Edwards or Dickinson went and visited Edwards, uh, to seek his counsel on how to handle the conflict at the Senate, Um, and, uh, uh, so Edwards gets the press, and there's good reason for that. I mean, we're all you know, big fans of Edwards. Uh, Dickinson was, I, I think I could argue that he was his intellectual peer. He didn't put out quite as much as Edwards did. But he also wrote about, about the awakening. Uh, you can get his, his opinion about the great awakening in his book, A Display of God's Special Grace. I'm and pretty sure that's I'm, on our site. If I'm, I don't remember if it is yeah. or not. I'd we'll have to go back that's and look. His, that's his defense of the awakening. It's followed up by a series of letters, another book called Familiar Letters to a Gentleman. Right. Uh, he kind of wrote a lot of vindications of his own writings. Whereas Edward writes these big blocks of things and, and, and Edward's piety was so well known uh, that I think Dickinson gets, uh, you know, gets pushed to the shadows of, of Edward's a little bit. And that's fine. I think Dickinson would be fine with that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, and so your your dissertation, you're not only hoping to sort of uh, recover the lost Dickinson and, and remind us about him, but but what what else are you trying to argue there in your dissertation?
1: Yeah, I, that's a good point. Uh, a Demon dissertation is different than a Ph.D. in the sense that you don't necessarily have to argue a point uh, and contribute original scholarship. Okay. i'm hoping to do with dickinson and he has his faults um i've written actually fairly extensively about areas where i disagreed with dickinson um and the sort of the foremost scholar on dickinson is a fellow named brian Lebeau. um i've corresponded with brian he's retired now but uh, he's been helpful he's he's a a easy to easy to talk to about dickinson um and so I'm not aiming to, to make an, a, a particular argument or point. What I'm hoping to do with Dickinson is, A, recover him from, I think, a general sense that he was such a, an advocate of moderation that he lacked conviction, mm-hmm. and he didn't. He wasn't a moderate because he just wanted everyone to get along. He was a moderate by conviction, and he wanted – he was probably more than anybody else of his era – Willing to lay down, he he was, he was he had an ability to understand primary from secondary things, and he was willing to, to to lay down his secondary things for the good of the primary. And he was a churchman first and foremost before he was a scholar and a philosopher, and a doctor. He was a medical doctor as well. Um, he wrote about um, diphtheria and uh, that kind of stuff, and it's actually preserved. There's over a thousand copies of his medical writings um, oh, wow. available about that particular disease, um, which came during the same time this sermon was written, by the way. Um, and so he, uh, but he was a moderate because he his primary goal, he saw himself as a caretaker of a very young, impressionable um, sprig called the Presbyterian church in the United States, you know? And so he, he, was, he had an ability to see what was secondary, fight for those things, if necessary, lay those down for the good of the primary, which was the health of the Presbyterian church. So that's why he was able to, to bring parties, and that was his conviction. It wasn't that he uh, lacked conviction. It wasn't that he was just, can't we all get along here, you know, kind of a guy. He argued vociferously and sometimes pointedly to get other guys to understand what you're staying, the ground you're standing on cannot be defended biblically or historically. You need to lay those things down and, um, and, and fight for the good and purity of the church. That was kind of what, what he really promoted. Um, And that's why he was willing to have his mind changed. Um, There's, you know, um, uh, 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 David Harlan has a, has an article that he wrote about Dickinson and, accuses Dickinson of lacking conviction of being ambiguous about uh, the great awakening, for instance. And he wasn't ambiguous about the great awakening. He was firmly committed to his view. He just happened to change his view. Um, That doesn't mean he was ambiguous in that view. You know, so I think that's an uncharitable uh, review of of Dickinson. Um, And so that's the kind of stuff that I hope to recover and hope to advance with it's because the Presbyterian church is always fighting. I don't know if that's my world, your world's Presbyterians. I'm sure our Baptist brethren, our Methodist brethren could say the same thing. But the Presbyterian church was always born with the gloves on, the fists up. That's true of the PCA. And as we begin to feel uh, some underpinnings of, of fracture and some of these things, uh, Dickinson can be a really valuable voice in understanding you can you can hold you can be a very solidly reformed calvinistic presbyterian churchman he was not a moderate calvinist as some have accused him to be you just don't find that in his writings right um but because he was irenic he's he's said to be a moderate calvinist he wasn't moderate he was he was a full-fledged five-pointer and and he argued for that um and he was as Presbyterian as they came. A lot of his writings are about defending the Presbyterian doctrine of ordination hmm. um, and Presbyterian polity. He was firm in those things, but he did it. He had such a voice to understand what the other side was truly saying. And he could, he could help navigate the, 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 uh, the false accusations made against the other side being made by people of his own party. And that's what I think we don't have much of in Presbyterianism, at least the PCA today. You know, we don't have enough voices saying, uh, I disagree with you. I agree with them, but they're not saying what you think they're saying. Or to turn around to their fellow like-minded guys and say, our friends on the other side are not saying that. You're misunderstanding them or you're not giving them room to figure things out.
0: Or or, even at worst misrepresenting them.
1: Or misrepresenting them. Exactly right. And that's what we need to have. We need to have that voice that is unafraid to allow people to explore uh, what they're trying to figure out uh, and not to mischaracterize them, you know. And at the same time, uh, to not characterize those that are opposed to something else as being um, staunch old side you know, uh, types that, that, that lack life, you know? And, and so our, our, battles are not dissimilar to Dickinson's. Yeah. Well,
0: that's, that's encouraging. I think it just reminds us again, how important it is to, uh, to know history and to read history, uh, and to, to read these primary sources. So, well, Brian, thank you so much for uh, sharing with us, uh, what you've been learning. I look forward to reading your dissertation when it comes out, whenever it's finished and, uh, uh, look forward to to continuing to to read Dickinson, and um, so we'll uh, we'll I guess keep us informed as a uh, as as things progress with your work, and uh, maybe we can uh, try to put something that you've done up on our site if you have anything that's um, you know public domain sort of writings on Dickinson. We'd love to love to put those up there. So yeah,
1: well, thanks, Caleb. Love the work you're doing, and I look forward to learning much more about not just our guy Dickinson, but others like it, and you're doing a, doing a good work. I'm, I'm grateful to be able to talk about him with you. Well, thank you. Well, this
0: has been uh, the Call Porter, Log College Press. Uh, let us know uh, how you're enjoying these uh, conversations, and if you have any uh, suggestions as to who we might be able to uh, continue to talk with, uh, let me know. My email is caleb at logcollegepress.com. Uh, dot dot com. All right, well, have a great day. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.